Welcome to one more edition of Politics and Right. I'm Egberto Willis, your host. Thank you so kindly for being with us. Once again with us, Tom Hartman, a four-time winner of the Project Censored Award, a New York Times bestselling author of 33 books and America's number one progressive talk show host. His show is syndicated and on local for-profit and non-profit stations and broadcast nationwide and worldwide. It also is simulcast on television into nearly 60, 60 million U.S. and Canadian homes. Senor Tom Hartman, how are you doing today, my friend? My buddy, Egberto. It's great to be back with you. Thank you so much for inviting me. Well, look, man, I tell you, you have another one out. And you know what I told you? Every time you release one of those guys, I want to be on that list. But this, this one, I was kind of, I, let me tell you, I had to just scan the thing. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. But I am intrigued by several of your chapters. New book is The Hidden History of Big Brother in America. What got you into writing that, Tom? Well, I've been fascinated with the, you know, with the topic, and we're certainly seeing, you know, <laughs> creeping big brotherism here, uh, you know, not just creeping. I mean, you know, the Patriot Act kind of blew it through a wall, and, uh, and as did the Telecommunications Act of 96, the Section 230, um, and uh, it's, you know, it's altered the world. I mean, you know, there's, there's the, the corporate big brothers and, and, and in some ways the government big brothers, too. So I wanted to, to do a deep dive into both, which we did. Well, I mean, and you sure did. I, you know, I was going through the table of contents and I'm like, wait, I would have never thought about covering this in Big Brother or covering that in Big Brother. I mean, it was quite an enlightening, uh, enlightening thing. So let, let me hear, uh, is this the last in the series or is the series continuing, the, 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 the hidden history of series? The next one I was doing the line edit on um, just before I called into your show, and it's going to be titled The Hidden History of Neoliberalism, How Reaganism Divided wow. America and How to Restore Our Greatness. As much as I kind of cringe at greatness, I don't get to pick the titles the publishers do, um, but uh, it's, that's what it's about, and it'll be out in September. And then that's probably going to be the last one in the series, but we'll see. Well, you know, that, that one is going to be exciting. Anytime I hear the word neoliberal, you know how we feel about that and you know, oh, yeah. the, the kind of things that we have to do about that. Anyway, uh, so, so tell me, um, how, what got you into uh, this? I mean, you're, the beginning you start, Big Brother and the Puritans. Why did we start there? Well, I mean, there have been two times in American history. I mean, people think of Big Brother, they think of 1984, George right, Wells. Exactly. Novel, you know, in which, you know, government is Big Brother and Big Brother's watching you and, you know, all that kind of stuff. And there have been two periods in American history where we actually had big brother governments. I mean, you know, like George Orwell style big brother governments. Um, the first, well, not the first, but one of them, the first one I treat in the book is the, the, the plight of people who were not uh, uh, Puritans in uh, Massachusetts and Southern New Hampshire back from the 1600s, right right up till the constitutional era. In fact, for this reason, Massachusetts almost didn't join the, the Republic. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, they had laws requiring that you had to go to church, you had to pay taxes to the local church, you had to treat the, the church elder as if he was, uh, you know, the, the senior official in the community uh, with great deference and all that sort of thing. And there were these, these three Quaker women who just weren't having it, and they refused to go to church, and they weren't paying their taxes. And so uh, the head, this was in Dover, New Hampshire, and John Greenleaf Whittier uh, made it famous with a, a poem titled uh, when, the, when the Women Came from Dover, uh, which I quote in the book. And um, uh, the, this pastor, his name was um, Hate Evil Nutter. That was his name, honestly. His first name was Hate Evil, all one word, and his second name was Nutter, and, uh, which I suppose is enough to make you crazy. But anyway. Yeah, the Nutter uh, part, yeah. He, he felt that he was being disrespected by these women because they weren't showing up in his church. So he ordered the town constable to tie them to the back of a horse cart in the middle of winter. It was, there was three feet of snow on the ground, strip them naked to the waist, whip them until they were bloody, and then drag them in the back of this cart to the next town where the process would be repeated. And this went on through three or four towns. I forget uh, how many. Uh, it's in the book. And finally, a constable stopped. And, and uh, you know, it was a fairly well-known story that, like I said, Whittier turned into a, one of our, you know, one of the more famous poems in American literary history. So that was the first. Um, the second, uh, of course, was slavery. If a, a person was Black in this country from 1619, um, you know, arguably up to quite recently, um, Big Brother was watching. Big Brother was controlling. And uh, certainly during the slavery era, up until the end of the Civil War, um, the South was a complete police state. You cannot, and you and I have talked about this before yeah. when my, an oligarchy came out, you cannot enforce slavery without a police state. They are, it's absolute, an absolute necessity. But by 1840, as a result of the invention of the cotton gin and its high price, so only big plantations could buy one, and it made a plantation 50 times more productive mm -hmm. in terms of cleaning cotton. Um, because of that, by the 1840s, the South had become a, uh, an oligarchy, a, a, just a fascist state. Um, elections were meaningless. Ballot boxes were stuffed. The people who could run for election were only members of the roughly thousand oligarchic families in the South who owned basically the South. Um, everybody represent, you know, elected to any kind of political office of any consequence was from one of these families. If you, uh, if you were white and you defied these families, you could get hanged, you could get uh, whipped, you could get imprisoned, uh, you could get driven out of the states. Uh, and so really the Civil War was not a war between the North and South. It was the war between a fascist mm. oligarchy in the South that, had, that no longer had any loyalty to democracy whatsoever against a Republican democracy in the North, at least to the extent that it was with men voting and not women. Um, and and by and large, not black people voting also, but still it was that those those were the two systems. And so that was our second big brother era. And then, you know, the before you go to the next one, because there, there's something that that kind of puzzled me when I was going through scanning through the book. Right. And the chapter that came out to me was big brother invents whiteness to keep power. And it is something that before reading your book, I would talk about on my on my station particularly telling people, hey, we, this was designed to, for, for some to keep power. Not, it wasn't designed for white people. It was designed for some to hold power. And when I saw that you brought that into the fold, it was like, oh, wow. Yeah, Tom, why don't you elaborate on that for me? 
Well, thank you. I can't uh, claim original uh, originality to that. I learned it from the 1619 Project and several ah. other books that were written around that time. But basically what was happening is, you know, starting in 1619, slavery uh, was a thing here in North America. And uh, by, the middle, uh, by, the, by the middle of the early 1600s, the 1630s, if I'm remembering correctly, and I would refer you to Hannah, uh, mm -hmm. uh, Nicole Hannah Jones's book. Yeah, Nicole Hannah Jones. Yeah. Um, but uh, around that time, uh, poor whites, first of all, many of the Africans who were brought over were just one generation of slavery or, or you know, it was impressment or it was, um, uh, I forget the word for where you have to pay back your right. fare. Indentured servitude. Indentured servitude. Thank you. Bless you. And um, that was the case with many of the white people who came to this country as well. And so they were finding common purpose with each other. And there were a number of rebellions that were black and white rebellions against mm -hmm. rich people. And so the, the good fathers of Virginia, specifically in the 1630s, as I recall, in fact, I think 1636 was the big year for it, but I'd have to, it's been a year since I wrote the book, I'd have to go mm -hmm. back and look at it. Um, uh, but, uh, you know, basically they said, okay, we're going to enforce this caste system, but we're, <laughs> we're going to do it the lazy way. We're going to make it so that, you know, anybody, you can just instantly look at them and know which caste they are in right. America. And uh, thus, they literally invented whiteness. I mean, slavery had existed forever in history. The Romans had slaves, the Greeks had slaves, mm -hmm. but their slaves looked just like them. Right. I mean, occasionally they'd take slaves from nearby people that they had conquered. So maybe the slaves spoke a different language or looked slightly different from them. But by and, by and large, you know, slavery was not a racial thing. Um, but uh, we invented that. Uh, we, America invented that. The Virginia invented whiteness. And it's still, it still haunts us. And, and now it's spread around the world like the, the poison that it is. Yeah, absolutely. So, well, when we move on now from the, the social aspect and we hit the corporate aspect of Big Brother, I think if you follow your, your lead, that is probably one of the most corrosive and dangerous portions of this. I think so, because in particular, or, you know, what what amplifies it is the Supreme Court saying that corporations are persons and that persons can buy politicians and that it's all just free speech, uh, political bribery. I want to no stop you right there, because I, I want to tell you, I met you during the move to amend days and the coffee party days. I remember you were one of the huge advocates that came out there and spoke to us about people, personhood and all of that. So. I want to give you a, 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 a late thanks on that because that was an important thing then. Well, thank you, Egberto. Yeah, I wrote a book about it called Unequal Protection in yes. 2002. Uh, the subtitle was How Corporations Became Persons. And um, so, you know, it's, it's particularly problematic when corporations not only have the ability to own politicians, write their own legislation, but, excuse me, but can also um, basically know everything about you. Um, we really don't know if any corporations have done what J. Edgar Hoover did. I mean, I mentioned in the book um, that Hoover, in fact, very early in the book, that Hoover was, you know, a gay man at the political pinnacle of power mm -hmm. and in a, at a time in the United States in the 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s, when just simply being gay was enough to get you imprisoned or, or murdered. And, um, but he, and, and, but he used political spying, big brother, government spying, to compile dossiers on virtually every politician and, and business leader who might ever challenge him. 
And, uh, you know, right up until 1960, in fact, because he was being blackmailed by Santo Traficati down in Miami, he had he and Clyde Tolson used to go down to Hialeah and gamble and and uh, Traficati would give them uh, money and young boys and access to the to the racetrack and things um, and give them rooms in the hotel. Um, uh, Traficati was blackmailing him. And, and so he was denying that there was even such a thing as organized crime right up until 1960. That year, there were only, I think, 17 prosecutions for organized crime in the United States. Then Bobby and John Kennedy came in. And Bobby in 61, the first year, had over 700 prosecutions of organized crime, which is when Traficati and Marcello found their backs to the wall and decided that they were going to do something about the Kennedys. But that's kind of a whole nother book <laughs> that I wrote a, a number of other years ago. I am, that, I'm going to be interested in, in, in that offshoot, the Kennedys and the mob. But yeah, yeah go that, ahead. That book is called Legacy of Secrecy that I, I co-wrote yeah. with uh, Lamar Waldron. Um, and it's about, you know, the both Kennedy assassinations and the Martin Luther King assassination. But um, I forgot where we were. <laughs> uh, no, no, that's how we're talking about the corporations and-, and take, Oh, yeah. Take, yeah. And, and so, you know, I don't know if any corporations have compiled dossiers on particular members of Congress and said, uh, <clears throat> if you uh, <laughs> don't say something, uh, this might get out. Um, but, you know, we, we live in a time when it's a very real possibility. Um, I, I actually don't even present that as a possibility in the book. I'm, I'm just speculating with you right now. But, I, you but know, I don't, Tom, I don't see how it's not you know, again, we are, we are just talking about speculation and you wouldn't be able to put that in a book. I understand that. But it's not hard to believe how these guys come up with certain laws that they know the average American citizen simply don't want, unless that's the case. Yeah. I've, I've assumed up until, this, up until recently that, you know, when uh, legislators are passing laws that they know most people don't want and that they know are going to be harmful to America and Americans, that they're doing it because they've been bought, because yeah. they've been off but it's not inconceivable that they're being blackmailed as well i just i just think that that's less likely i that's the kind of thing that well i was going to say that's the kind of thing that would probably get out but you know hoover's blackmail of everybody didn't get out until after he died exactly so exactly exactly so you never you never know about that so when it comes to you also link capitalism in there um i personally think that capitalism needs all these types of coercions and absent these coercions you can't have a system as we have it at the same as where it really is abusive to people and at the same time people tolerate it and therefore coercion is necessary your thoughts on that relative to uh what you've written by coercion what do you mean well you cannot have people believe you cannot have people work themselves off for the profit of others and not complain about it. You cannot have people who simply say, um, come out to the defense of, let's say, the the, student, the real capitalists as they do, if they're not coerced into the thought process that have them doing that. And I think in a lot of ways, knowing our internals probably presents that case. Yeah, well, you make a, you make a, good, a good argument for it. I, I mean, again, I, I think that it's, it's not so much that you know, if, if a group of people want to unionize that uh, Amazon is spying on their, uh, on their That's purchase another point. Industry and they're going to, and they're going to use it against them. I think it's more that Amazon will simply hire, you know, union busters to come in and scare the hell out of them. Um, you know, I, I think that the big club here right now is money, not, not, uh, you know, implied or even direct coercion. Oh, so you don't, so you think it's mostly 
but let me ask you this then, Tom. I don't know. Let's, let's push. Let's push that a little further. Sure. It's it's money. Okay. How does the money get one to do what they need to do? Well, money is a form of coercion. I mean, okay. you know, if you don't have enough to eat, you know, money is food. If you don't have a place to stay, money is shelter. If you don't have, uh, you know, the the clothing you need to protect yourself right. from the elements when winter comes, you know, money is survival. And uh, in addition to all the things that we generally think of it as, you know, as status and as leisure and as, you know, whatever. And uh, so uh, I think that you can build a strong case. And frankly, this is the case that was built back in the 1930s to, to come up with the National Labor Relations Act, the Wagner Act in 1935 to legalize unions. You can build a strong case that um, the, uh, the power that an employer has over a non-unionized employee um, is extraordinary, particularly during a time of widespread poverty, um, which was very much the 1930s, and is increasingly America today, um, sadly. So, yeah, I, I, I think we could we could frame it entirely in a coercion frame. You know, it, it is amazing that um, because I, I did a piece two days ago with Larry Summers, and Larry Summers appeared on TV, and I'm going to tie this into your book, but Larry Summers came came on and he, 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 he explained to the well, he thought he was explaining to what I call a naive audience that after you've gotten four uh, percent or so in wage increases that it automatically generates inflation that actually takes back more than the than your increased income was. And then he starts oh, crap. I know. And then he starts to bring up and he says, and by the way, you know, you know, Ukraine creates a lot of wheat, so therefore there's going to be a lot of transportation. You know, we, are, we can overproduce more oil if we wanted to, which means from U.S. ports, we'll have ships going from U.S. ports with this oil to deliver whatever. So he, he intermingled in there, and we're going to have to start thinking about having ships not follow the Jones Act and go and, and simply have the, go to the cheapest shipper. So he attacked inflation wage. Inflation has justified wages as being a, as being the causation of inflation the reduction mm-hmm. of uh, you know he he in one package right and i'm like talking about subliminal messaging to tell the workers don't ask for too much you know it was right. just amazing and I, when i tie that into what we're talking about big brother it is like big brother telling you all these things that will occur yeah. in in this scenario yeah larry summers is a neoliberal's neoliberal it's going good uh, for your next book yeah, <laughs> that's a little too late to write him into it. But if he's not in it, I'll have to go. Look. He probably, I, I bet he's in it because he was there with Obama and when, oh, when yeah. he came up, you know, so I bet he's in there. But second thing, globalism and Big Brother. Tell me yeah. about it with respect to the book. Well, uh, the info wars. Right. Uh, you know, I, you know. It's a tough one. I mean, globalism is like, you know, one category and Big Brother is kind of another. What's happening with regard to a global response to Big Brother, I can I can directly address, which right, is... Right, that's what I mean. I, actually, I'm going from your part three. Okay, okay. So um, the, the European Union has come up with a, a set of basic rules, basic, you know, rights for people who are uh, users of the internet. And you, you're seeing the, the consequence of this when you visit websites and they say, well, you accept cookies. Um, the, the, uh, the requirement is that you have to be, uh, you have to disclose things, mm-hmm. you know, people are being tracked and things like that. And there are limits on the ways and technologies that can be used to track people. There's also a really cool thing called the right to be forgotten, 
that the European Union has now recognized, which came out of a lawsuit from a Spaniard who um, was very upset that his name, uh, he had been involved in a bankruptcy back in the late 90s. And whenever anybody Googled his name, because he was a low profile guy, that was the only thing that showed up. And he wanted it to take it off the search engines. And so uh, they're, they're pretty vigorous about it. Plus, here in the United States, um, we're the only developed country in the world that allows the internet, your internet service provider, the company that's bringing the internet into your home, to observe absolutely everything you're doing online. They can watch every keystroke, every read every email, look at every website you visit, even know how, you know, how quickly or slowly you scroll down the page, stopping mm-hmm. at particular pictures or headlines or ads. They know all this stuff and they can record it and they can sell it. And uh, so there's that. And then the, uh, which, that, you know, that's the result of Donald Trump having hired Verizon lawyer Ajit Pai as the, as the head of the FCC and blowing up what we referred to as net neutrality. Mm-hmm. I always thought it should have been referred to as net privacy because it was really about Title II of the Telecommunications Act, yep. which has been used since the 1930s to say that if you want to wiretap somebody, if you want to listen on the phone conversation, you have to have a warrant signed by a judge. And up until Donald Trump and Ajit Pai got a hold of the FCC, that was the law with regard to the internet in the United States too. And it still is everywhere else in the world. So you know, we've got a serious privacy problem. The other big problem um, that has gone worldwide, but really started here in the United States, is that, uh, well, let me, let me give you a, a setup for this. Um, starting around the year 1000, you know, around the Whoa, time of the Magna Carta, 1100. No computers then. Yeah, uh, no, no computers then. Um, there was this notion, it was, it's sometimes referred to as the castle doctrine, that, a, you know, a man's castle yeah. at home is his castle. But the, the flip side of that is that you know, if it's your castle, you're responsible for what happens in it. Mm-hmm. So if you, Egberto, were to go out and put a, a sign out in front of your house, uh, you know, Saturday afternoon that says big party Saturday night, 10 p.m., you know, everybody welcome. And you leave the door open and, and just every reprobate in, in the community comes in. <laughs> so, you know, just anybody who's looking for, you know, some some place they can get away with some kind of skeezy activity that nobody else would allow. So you're sitting there in your house and it's midnight and this has been going on for a while. And there's somebody in the back room getting raped and there's somebody over here showing child porn against the TV wall and a couple of people in the corner shooting up heroin and the police walk in who goes to jail. Well, all those criminals and you, because it's in your house, you're responsible for it. And if you allow criminal activity in your home and you don't stop it or report it, you go to jail too. So uh, like I said, that has literally been in British common law for a thousand years. And it was an American law all that time. Well, in 1996, in the Telecommunications Act of 1996, Section 230, uh, the geniuses who wrote this thought, hey, let's carve an exception into this. We'll leave it intact that, you know, if, if Tom has a party in his house and terrible things happen, he can be held accountable. But if he builds a house on the internet, even if he's selling, even if he's inviting in, as long as he's not doing it, as long as he invites in other people who are selling child porn or who are selling drugs or who are selling or who are terrorists and organizing bombings and attacks on January 6th and stuff like that, as long as it's his house, but he's not doing it, he has no responsibility at all. Mm-hmm. And thus, you know, within a couple of years, Mark Zuckerberg became one of the richest guys in the world. That, 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 that is a shame. Um, Without giving, <laughs> we need to do something about it. And by the way, you know who wrote a pretty good book about this is Josh Hawley. I mean, you know, you've got Republicans as well as Democrats who are pretty flipped out about Section 230. 
Well, you know, weren't they trying to change that? It was in Congress having hearings trying to change that law. They still are. And, yeah. uh, you know, at the time that Hawley wrote his book, it was when Trump was still president and, and the whole sales pitch was, you know, Facebook just took down Donald Trump. We need to regulate these big companies. But, you know, in his book, he raises a whole, I mean, the second half of the book is just, you know, it's, it's about how liberals are going to destroy America. But the first half of the book is a pretty good documentation mm -hmm. of uh, how Section 230 has just wreaked havoc on our country. Well, I mean, it sure has both with the election, you name it, you got it. Um, without giving the, the, end of your, in the end of your book, um, how do we rein this in? Just kind of topically, not anything in detail. Well, I think that, you know, number one, we need to deal with Section 230 and get that under control. Number two, we need to break up some of these giant monopolies. Um, no, no one company should control 80 or 90 percent of an industry like Google does with search, for example, or Facebook does with social media. Um, number three, we need to adopt the, the European privacy laws, um, the GDRP, I think it's the yeah, GP. Yeah, yeah, whatever it is. <laughs> We need, to, we need to adopt that or something like it. And California is kind of leading on that, but they can't do things that, that the federal government could do. And, and, and finally, we need to end uh, the so-called net neutrality, and, or we need to restore net neutrality, end uh, Ajit Pai and Donald Trump's sabotage of the Telecommunications Act and the uh, Title II of the Telecommunications Act of 1930, whatever it was. It's funny. As a starting point. Plus, we need to wait as to, as to how they're being spied on. <laughs> And, you know, I've, I, you know I, I'm, I'm still, you know, even though Europe has better laws, I still sit down here and wonder sometimes, but do they really work? Because it's a pipe. I don't know. I, 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 I think you need great laws on the front end and the back end. Um, I agree. You know, I actually wrote an article on, on the uh, net neutrality for common dreams about, I don't know, years ago. And it just popped up recently. And I'm like, oh, I forgot about that year, you know, several years ago during our move to amend days. Oh yeah, you were you were at the front of a lot of this stuff. Yeah, we were we were with this stuff a long, long time. Um, Tom, first of all, folks, you guys have to go out there and get that book. And you know, I don't, I you know, I get a lot of people on here, and I don't just tell them to go get the book. But this is one. Well, every book that Tom writes, you got to get out there and get. So don't forget to go ahead. No, Tom, you know, you know, it's. Uh, you put your you put you put the stuff in there. The hidden history of Big Brother in America: How the death of privacy and the rise of surveillance threatened us and our democracy. Folks, get don't only I'm going to tell you don't only get that book. Get the whole damn series because if progressives are going to do the work that's necessary to recover all that went wrong in this country, we need these different. We we need pathways. And, you know, I used your, I, I love your book, the one that you did on healthcare. Mm -hmm. I use, I, I mentioned that book and I, I promote that book all of the times uh, because I think it, it is a very, very important read. This one is a very important read, though I have only scanned it. I have to be honest about it. But uh, again, a very important read. Tom Hartman, thank you so, well, you know what? Thank you so kindly for the book. Thank you for kindly for appearing once again on Politics Done Right. And I cannot wait for the next one. And thank you so much for having me, Egberto. It's always a pleasure talking with you. I always enjoy our conversations. Thank you so much.
we spend a lot of time deconstructing the news, trying to trying to parse it into a form that everybody can understand. We try to find those little nitpicks where uh, it goes, it flies above the fray, etc. If you really like these videos that we do, I want to ask a big favor. Please go ahead, number one, subscribe to our channel, and number two, please join if you can. Thank you so kindly for watching. Keep watching. Please remember to share. We must populate the entire internet with our progressive message, a message that we know is what most Americans say that they want. So help us please join.